John chapter 13, 12 to 20, the example of our Lord and teacher. 13 verse 12. And so, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the example he has set before us. May we understand from this portion of your word what it means for us to repeat, to emulate what he did and how he exemplified true godliness to us. Help us, Father, to have grace, to have wisdom and power to live accordingly. May we do so, for we ask in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. The Lord Jesus, in this passage, he is washing the disciples' feet at dinner time, at supper time. He's washing the disciples' feet. They are surprised by it. We know about their surprise because Peter is surprised by it, that the Lord himself would condescend, would deign, would humble himself so much to wash their feet, their filthy, dirty feet. Usually, the host provides that to the guest, for the guest to do so on his own. But in this case, Christ himself, who is the leader, he's not necessarily the host, but he is the leader of the group, he, the teacher, the master, the Lord, he condescends, he humbles himself to wash their feet. Now, it is interrupted by this conversation between Peter the Apostle and the Lord in verses 5 to 11. It's interrupted briefly with this exchange. And finally, when Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me, verse 8, Simon Peter, he concedes and he says, okay, then not only my feet, but my hands, my head, do whatever you want, basically, because I want to have a part with you. I want to have a part with you. And in that exchange, Jesus also said that one among you is not clean. Yes, I washed figuratively, in a sense, a compare, figurative comparison. I washed literally your feet, but figuratively, all of you, or spiritually, you are washed, except one of you. One of you is washed physically, but not spiritually. He will pick up on that concept in verses 12 to 20, especially especially in verses 18 and 19. In 18 and 19, he picks up on that. That, we will see, is Judas Iscariot. But meantime, he wants everyone to learn from his example that even though he was the Lord of glory, the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. Though he was the Lord of glory, crucified, he humbled himself in this way before he was crucified. And he humbled himself to come from heaven to earth, where there is sin and misery on the earth. He humbled himself in that way. And in this way, he's teaching, before he dies rises and departs out of this world, he gives them a lasting, enduring example 
of humility because if they have true faith, they will humbly love one another. They will, in humility, serve one another. If they have true faith in Him, they will show their true faith by loving their brother. And if they don't have true faith, they won't love their brother. This is also what the Apostle John, who was at this very incident, what he learned and then what he taught. He says in 1 John 4, verse 20, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 1 John 4, 20 to 21. If we love our brother, we truly love God. If we don't love our brother, love our brother in the biblical way, in the scriptural way, not according to our own imagination, but according to the way the Bible says we ought to love our brother. If we do, then we truly love God. Our profession of faith matches our practice of faith. 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 11. 1 John 3, 11 to 18. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. This is the example Jesus is leaving, which we undertake to study. Now, back to John 13. 13, verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? Jesus washed their feet. Their feet, in verse 12, is the feet of the disciples in verse 5. It wasn't that he just washed one, that is, Peter's, or just a couple of them, Peter, James, and John. He washed all of them, including Judas Iscariot. 13.5, the disciples' feet, and in verse 12, he had washed their feet. That means he also washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, all of them those who were elect and those who were reprobate. In this case, one reprobate. He takes his garments again, clothes himself as normal as he entered, and reclines at table again, which means that they were in the middle of the meal when he disrupts the meal to focus on the spiritual. Because when we are eating, often and naturally, we're focused on the physical. We talk about the food, we appreciate the food, we enjoy the food. The food is the center of attention. The physical world and the physical food. Yes, it has its place, but some people are so addicted and preoccupied with that, they don't even think about spiritual things. In Jesus' case, he interrupts that physical food with this spiritual lesson. In the middle of the meal, he interrupts it with the spiritual lesson of washing his disciples' feet. Then he comes back to the table to finish. And then they proceed, as we'll see next time, in verses 21 and following. He then asks them, Do you know what I have done to you? 
Now, during the rest of the meal, there is a spiritual discussion. They're talking about heavenly matters for the rest of the meal because he prods them, he goads them, he arouses their curiosity. Do you know what I have done to you? He's not meaning, do you know I just washed your feet? They know that. What he means is, do you understand the reason why? Let me interpret for you. Do you understand that significance? Do you understand it in that way? And so he answers his own question. Verses 13 and following. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. You call me teacher and Lord. They called Jesus by both of these names or titles, teacher or rabbi and Lord. Teacher or rabbi and Lord. Or in the reverse, verse 14, Lord and teacher. Whatever way, interchangeably, he's using these proper words to describe himself. And he even tells them, you are right, for so I am. I'm not criticizing you for calling me teacher and Lord. You're right, that's who I am. But have you contemplated, have you considered, if you call me that, what the implications are? What should happen in your own life if that's the case? That's the point he makes. Now, firstly, when he says teacher, let's understand that this teacher is not the average teacher. Our teacher, Christ, our master, Christ, our instructor, Christ, he is not the average instructor. He's not that way at all. Matthew 23, Matthew 23, 5 to 7. Matthew 23, 5. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men, Rabbi. People who flaunt their pedigree, people who want to be known a certain way, people who take pride in their education, in their accomplishments, in their status, in their rank, in their positions above others, they love to have certain words said of them or certain forms of address toward them. In this case, they want to be called rabbi or teacher. He says, don't be looking like the people of the world look. I'm not that way. Only one is your rabbi, verse 8. Verse 8. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. One is your teacher who is the ultimate, supreme, heavenly teacher, Christ. Whatever he teaches is right, nothing is wrong. Every word that came out of his mouth was righteousness, not wickedness. Whatever Jesus says and whatever Jesus does can never be categorized as wrong, as wicked, as sinful, because he lived a perfect life. He lived in active obedience Actively in mind, in mouth, and in movements, pleasing God. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. John 8, 29. Christ was that way. So He was the best of all teachers because He was a perfect teacher. He not only taught, He walked as He talked. That's Christ. There's no one else. Even His enemies knew this. Matthew chapter 22, in terms of his teaching. Matthew 22, 15 and 16. Matthew 22, 15. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, 
and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. This one sent to trap, or these ones sent to trap him. Call him teacher, that's right. We know that you are truthful, that's right. You teach the way of God in truth, that's right. He's not saying anything wrong. And Jesus defers to no one. He's an impartial teacher and judge. He's impartial. We know he's impartial. We just saw that last time because he told Simon Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He told Simon Peter the truth face to face. And even when Simon Peter tried to prevent his crucifixion, he said, get behind me, Satan. Matthew 16, 23. Get behind me, Satan. So he told even his closest disciples and friends the truth, whatever they needed to hear. So this enemy of Christ is telling the truth of Christ. Christ is the teacher like no one else. No other Christian teacher, no other pastor, no other teacher from any other religion or any other subject. He is the supreme teacher of all things that are good and right. He is. So we should seek to know what he says about any and every subject. Furthermore, in John 13, 13, he's called Lord. He's called Lord. This term Lord is the word kurios in the original language. And sometimes it means merely sir. It is sometimes translated sir. And at other times, for the most part, in context, in reference to God and Christ, most of the time it refers to them as deity, as having a divine nature, Lord in that way. Lord in that specific way. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. This is the man healed of blindness. And he knows that Jesus is a prophet. He knows that. He knows that he's sent from God and has power. But he does not yet know the specific identity of Jesus of Nazareth. He does not yet know that. So, look at verse 35. John 9 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, And who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This is when he became a believer at this point. Not before when he was healed and not when the controversy between the Pharisees and the parents and the Pharisees and him had occurred. At this point, he becomes a believer. In verse 36, he doesn't know exactly the, the identity of Christ. So in 36, he calls him Lord and your Bible will have a footnote or sir. It should actually say sir at that point in the main text of the Bible. Sir, uh, who and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Because he doesn't yet know the exact identity, precise identity. But when Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, as the Christ, as the Son of God, deity, possessing deity, he says in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now he believes in Jesus as the Lord Jesus, divine Jesus, and worships him in 9.38. Also, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. After the resurrection, when Jesus appears to his disciples, we find... In John 20, 26 to 29, what Thomas, the, the disciple Thomas, declares of Christ. 
20:26. And after eight days, again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Thomas declares to him in verse 28, My Lord and my God. He does not mean my sir, my respected man. He's not meaning it that way. He means Lord in the sense of deity because he ascribes deity to him by calling him my God. My Lord, which is one title for deity, and my God, another title for deity. I ascribe both. And he's not taking God's name in vain because of verse 29. If he were taking God's name in vain, Jesus would have said, repent because you took God's name in vain. But he doesn't. He says, because you have seen me, have you believed? He acknowledges that he's expressing true belief. So, we, when we address him as teacher and Lord, we better believe everything he teaches is true, and as our Lord, that we must submit to him. We must submit to him. We must obey him. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? We must submit to him as the supreme God of heaven, who deserves our worship and our obedience. Verse 14, John 13, 14. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And 15, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. What does our Lord mean here about us washing one another's feet? Does he mean that we should wash one another's feet annually, monthly, weekly, on special occasions? What does he mean that we should wash one another's feet? Because one Christian denomination or the other practices it in one way or another, like this. They think he meant that each week or each month or whenever they decide or whenever they serve communion or annually around the time of the crucifixion and resurrection in the spring during Easter time, at that point, at some point, that that ought to be practiced. That should be practiced. And that's what Jesus meant here. Well, the scripture does not say. It does not say any of the above. It does not say any of the above. And especially in some of the more ostentatious religions like the Roman Catholics, when they do it, they do it for show. Do you think that the Pope actually cares about the common man, the paupers of the world? No. In fact, if we're talking about the current Pope, you can check this a couple of years ago. He was at some place shaking hands, and one woman who was really adoring him, and there was a, a barrier or a rope between them, uh, and there was a line of people. He was shaking their hands. She held his hand longer than he wanted, and he pulled it away from her with an irritated, angry look on his face and walked on. She was adoring him. You see, in, in, he doesn't care about the common man. They don't care about the common man. They exploit the common man. So that's a danger that Christ has warned us about in other places like Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, 1 to 19, or 1 to 24, he has warned us about things like that, not to do so. And even what we read in Matthew 23, 5 to 8, there he warned us 
about putting on a show. We shouldn't be that way at all. So that is one thing to avoid. And since it does not prescribe any actions in the local church to do so, then we have to be careful about instituting something, practicing something that's not actually instituted in the Bible. Now, having said that, is it unknown or is it out of place for anybody to ever do that? No, it's not because of 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. In 1 Timothy 5, we'll read verses 9 and 10. The apostle is describing in this chapter which widows should be put on the list of the church to receive support from the church. Which widows in the church should receive support from the church. And he describes the widow in this way. 1 Timothy 5, 9 and 10. Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every Good work. In this passage, it's quite evident that he's speaking of literal good deeds, is he not? So one of them would be that if she has washed the saints' feet, it says. That means that there will be occasions when the saints, in a culture that has dirty, dusty roads and they wear sandals, when they come to, their, uh, to one's house, another's house, that they will first need to be refreshed before they sit down, relax, enjoy a meal, and fellowship with the host. That that kind of thing will have to take place. So if she has been extra diligent and said, no, no, let me help you with that, let me do it for you. If she has been that way, shown extra diligence in that kind of manner, then that shows her godliness. It would be similar to Rebecca in Genesis 24. Remember, the servant of Abraham went off to find a wife for Isaac, and he was looking and observing carefully at Rebekah. He asked her for some water, and she said, yes, I'll give you some water, but I'll also draw water from the well, not an electronic well, not run by electricity and power, not with an engine, but a well where she has to dip the bucket with a rope many times to water the camels who contain about 20 or 30 gallons each for each camel, for each camel. So that would have taken extra effort. That showed a part of her godliness, that she was eager to help this stranger not only have water for himself and his men, but also for his camels. And it would have taken her a lot of effort to do so. That's the same here that he's meaning in 1 Timothy 5.10, that this widow is indeed a godly, diligent woman who shows her love for the brethren in doing things like that. So, that's what he's saying here, that we should be diligent in serving, helping one another, even if it makes us stoop lower even if it makes us dirty, and if, even if it's inconvenient for us, we should help others. That's the example he has set. It may be washing somebody's feet or something else that's a low thing to do in our culture, but it may not be that. It may be something else. Verse 15, John 13, 15. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. By this example, the perfect Lord and Master, the perfect teacher, is saying that we should do as he did. 
If we belong to him, we will do as he did. We will have these kinds of desires of devotion toward one another. He will repeat this, pick up on it in terms of love in 13, 34 and 35. 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The commandment to love one another as he loved them. As he loved us, we should love others. The same in 15. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. What are the ways in which we can carry out this kind of love toward one another? What are some examples? Keep your place here and turn to Romans 12. Romans chapter 12. We'll read a couple of these passages which are self-explanatory and others of them with brief comments. First one, Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing... You will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. The whole chapter is instructive for us. We'll read portions of it. Philippians chapter 2. 2 verse 1. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty deceit or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Then two models, two examples among the disciples, not just the apostles, but the disciples. 219, 
But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. That's Timothy serving and loving not only Paul, but the church. Verse 25. 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you and longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly in order that when you see him again, you may receive, may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore receive him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. These are the kinds of ways in which we ought to be serving one another. That's the way Christ served, and he expects us to do the same. John 13, 16. 13, 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. This contains some obvious truths. These are adages or axioms of life. Everybody knows a slave is not greater than the master of the slave. Everybody knows that, right? And doesn't everybody also know that one who is sent is not greater than the one who sent him? Is the ambassador of the country greater than the president of the country? No. The ambassador is sent by the president to other countries to represent the country. The president doesn't go because he's greater. He sends the ambassador to conduct the general business, the daily business in another country on behalf of one's own country. Everybody knows the president is greater than the ambassador. The president sends the ambassador in the same here. The slave is lesser than the master. The sent is lesser than the sender. If that's the the case, how does it relate to us in Christ? Are we not slaves of Christ? And does he not send us out into the world? Of course he does. Verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Christ is a sender and he is sent by the Father. There's a chain connection between us and the Father through Christ. So, we are lesser than Christ. But does it stop there? Since we are lesser than Christ, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? He says we're supposed to do it in verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. In 15, 20, in John 15, 20, he tells us some of what we should expect and do. John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Application. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. What's the application? If they persecuted Christ, what makes us think they won't persecute us? They will persecute us. If they keep the word of Christ, they will keep your word too. If they keep or obey what you say, because you teach them to repent and believe in the gospel and walk faithfully, if they keep your word, they're keeping my word, they're keeping the word of the Father. That's the connection. Matthew 
chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. A a disciple not above his teacher, a slave not above his master. And what does he describe? Persecution. He goes on to describe persecution. Be ready. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But it's not only persecution. Luke chapter Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 verse 40. Luke 6:40. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. First, the truth. A pupil is not above his teacher. We know that. The teacher has a higher rank than the students. Correct? The students are supposed to listen to the teacher, obey the teacher, follow the instructions of the teacher, learn the knowledge of the teacher, live according to that knowledge of the teacher. Students or pupils are supposed to do that in relationship to their teacher. But when the student is fully trained, will be like his teacher. When the student is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. In what way? In every way. Whatever the teacher taught, the student becomes like the teacher once he's fully trained, and he repeats whatever the teacher taught him. And by the grace of God, he might even exceed his teacher. That sometimes happens too. So, He's supposed to be fully trained and be exactly like his teacher. Well, in what way then will he be like his teacher? He says in verse 17, John 17, uh, 13, 17, If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. It's not enough to know with intellectual knowledge. It's not enough to know with factual knowledge. We must do. Most people, even in churches, they have an intellectual curiosity about the things of God and the things of the Bible. They love to gain knowledge, personal knowledge, factual knowledge of the Bible to figure out things, understand the connections between Genesis to uh, Genesis and Deuteronomy or Deuteronomy and Revelation. And Revelation and Isaiah, they love to make all these connections to have some kind of symmetry or harmony in their mind. Okay, I figured out the Bible. But it doesn't end with that. You have to figure out the Bible to obey the Bible, he's saying. You are blessed, you are happy, you receive God's blessings and prosperity, His goodness come, if you do them. It's not enough to know Knowledge is for the purpose of obedience. It's the doctrine conforming to godliness. 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 10. The doctrine conforming to godliness. We must do them. Whatever we learn, we must do. We must practice. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. If we love Him, we will keep His commandments. John 15, 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We must bear much fruit and prove to be His disciples. Matthew 7 24 to 27. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them 
will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. In both verses 24 and 26, the translation says act. Literally, he says do or does. If you hear and do them, then you are like the man who built his house upon the rock. If you hear and don't do them, you're a foolish man who builds his house on sand. Luke, Luke chapter 8, Luke 8, 19 to 21. Luke 8, 19 to 21. And his mother came to him and his brothers also, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. The true mothers and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Luke 11. Luke 11, 27. 11, 27 to 28. And it came about while he said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. True blessing is for those who hear the word of God and observe, who do, who practice what they are taught. John thirteen eighteen. What he has said will be practiced by the 11 disciples, but not by one of them, not by Judas. John thirteen eighteen. I do not speak of all of you, I know the ones I have chosen. He's not speaking of all of them. He knows whom he has chosen. Well, he chose all to be apostles, to be taught by him, and to work with him for three and a half years. But he did not choose all of them for eternal salvation. He means eternal salvation. I know the ones I have chosen for eternal salvation. We know he means that because of what he's saying about this one, Judas Iscariot. Why does he say this in advance? He's saying it because he says in verse 19, that you may believe that I am he. That you may believe that I am he. He wants them to know who he is and to have assurance that what he says is true. You see, when we see one among us defect, apostatize, walk away, start to believe in heresy, and start to demonize us, start to disown us, what will we think? What will we do? We become troubled, we become anxious, and we wonder, am I believing the truth? Do I know the truth? Is this the truth or not? Or is what so-and-so is saying the truth? He tells them this in advance so that when Judas does defect, that they are not demoralized and give up completely. He wants them to have confidence in his word. That's why he tells them in advance about this matter. He repeats this fact later in chapter 16. In chapter 16... Verse 4, but these things, 16.4, but these things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. He told them in advance that they were going to be persecuted, so that they would not be so troubled as to give up hope. But they would know that he spoke the word of God to them before it actually did come about. Um, 
he also says in chapter 15, chapter 15, after he told us that a slave is not greater than his master and that they will persecute us, 1521, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. They do not know the one who sent me. He wants them to know that when eventually they persecute you, when eventually they deny your doctrine, they're not denying you ultimately. They don't know God. So you should have nothing to do with them because they don't know God. Now back to 13.18. How do we know that he means Judas Iscariot and that Judas Iscariot never was saved, never will be saved, never will go to heaven. When he died, he did not go to heaven. How do we know that that is the case with Judas Iscariot? That he actually does mean Judas and that he was never saved and never will be saved. Well, John 6. John 6. John 6 and verse 70. 670. After Jesus challenged the twelve to leave him, just like the multitude left him, Peter says, no, I'm not going to do that. We're not going to do that. John 670. Jesus answered them. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Who is Judas? He is a devil, and he is a betrayer. Verse 71. A devil and a betrayer. How about John chapter 12? John chapter 12. What was Judas Iscariot's secret sin? John 12, verse 6. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Judas among the 12, he was the treasurer. He kept the money box and he used to pilfer. He used to steal money from the box. And they didn't know. The disciples didn't know that that was being done. How about John 13? John 13, verse 8. Our very scripture says that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Like like an unruly horse, an unruly donkey, that perhaps you think has been tamed, has become uh, docile, and you can use the animal. But when the master is near the foot of the animal, and suddenly the animal lifts up its heel and kicks the, the master and harms the master, there is one among the disciples just like that, and it's Judas Iscariot. On the surface, it looks like he's tame. He's one of us. He's controlled. But really, he's not. And eventually, he's going to lift up his heel and harm the master. The scripture that's quoted is from Psalm 41, verse 9. That the scripture many years ago predicted that one among the disciples of Christ would do this very thing. Normally, eating bread with him normally smiling and enjoying and fellowshipping over the things of God, normally everything is fine. But at one point, that one who looks tame will actually reveal himself to be a wild animal, to lift up his heel against the master. And Jesus says that he's one among them. How do we know? Verse 21, John 13, 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Why were they at a loss? Because no one among them practiced sin, not openly. And they didn't know covertly 
that Judas was stealing the money, right? So the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This would be John the Apostle. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. In this custom, John the Apostle is on one side of Christ. Judas is on the other side of Christ when they recline at the meal. And on the other side of John is Simon Peter. Simon Peter whispers or speaks softly to John. John, ask Christ who you're talking about. Who are you talking about? And then Jesus Christ gives the answer. When I dip the morsel and pass it on to the one next to me, the one who eats it, which would be on the other side of Christ, he is the one who's going to betray me. So it's Judas Iscariot, right then and there at the meal. He is the betrayer. But did this betrayal, did this thievery, did this last forever? Yes. John 17, 12. John 17, 12. Did he remain in his sin? Did he die in his sin? John 17, 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The scripture might be fulfilled from Psalm 41, verse 9. In regard to one, concerning one, not one of them perished except or but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He guarded the eleven, but one of them was ordained to perish, to destruction, perdition, destruction, in order to fulfill the scripture. All according to the purpose of God, that's Judas Iscariot. You recall earlier, we read from 1 John 3, he was speaking of a murderer. He said, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Right? 1 John 3, 11 to 18. And he says, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Was not Judas complicit? Was he not a partner in the murder of Christ? Because Christ died unjustly, it's considered murder. We call it sacrifice because of its relationship to our sins. We call it crucifixion in relation to the Romans and how they put people to death. But it's also murder in relation to Judas Iscariot and in relation to all of the authorities involved in what they did against Christ. They murdered Christ. He wasn't a criminal worthy of death. If he's not worthy of death, then they murdered him. Even if the, the government does it, it's still murder. They murdered Christ. Well, Judas was a part of all that murder. So no eternal life. Not only did he murder Christ, he murdered himself. In Matthew 27, 3 to 5, Judas hanged himself. He committed self-murder or suicide. He murdered Christ and he murdered himself. So he perished, it says, past tense, the son of perdition. That's Judas. That, that sh this doctrine should not alarm us. It should make us discerning. It should encourage us to persevere, to remain faithful to the Lord, and it should encourage us to preach repentance to others. And then when we eventually do see someone rise up like Judas Iscariot in the midst of the church, it makes it clear to us who is on the side of God and who's not on the side of God. It must happen that divisions exist among you so that those who are approved may have become evident among you. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. That's the way it happens. 
now John 13, 19. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. The Apostle John, in quoting Christ here, he is referring back to many passages of the Old Testament where God declares that he tells things in advance to the people so that the people might trust his word and not idols. Trust in word, his words, God's words, and not in men. Trust in God, not in men. Isaiah 43.10 Isaiah 43.10 You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. And 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. I am He, no other God and no other Savior. Isaiah 46, Isaiah 46, 10, 46, 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Isaiah 48, 3, 48, 3 to 5, 48.3. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. Therefore, I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. God declares in advance so that we might ascribe the truthfulness, the veracity of the fulfillment to God himself, not to us, not to another, not to an idol, only to God. And this would give them further confidence to believe in Christ. Not that they didn't already believe. We know they already believed. Like we saw in John 6.70, we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. 6.66-71, we know that you are the Son of God, the Holy One of God. They knew that. But he means here that they might further believe. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief in that kind of way to believe and have greater confidence in the gospel. Verse 20, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him, sorry, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Christ now tells us that When they receive our words, they receive the words of God. So don't be discouraged when people don't believe because you should be confident that whatever you say, if they believe, they're receiving me. If they receive me, they receive the Father. Don't let discouragement happen when they don't receive you. And they say that they still love God. If they reject the truth you preach, they cannot at the same time say that they love God. No, they don't love God if you tell them the truth and they don't receive that truth. Matthew 10.40, He who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. Luke chapter 10, Luke 10. 16. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. When they reject what we say in truth, based on Holy Scripture, when they reject that, they reject Christ and they reject the Father. 1 John 4, verse 6. 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. 
By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Our Lord teaches all of this in advance to encourage us. Persevere in loving humility toward one another. We love one another to show we love God. Not to earn salvation, but to produce the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit will evidence itself in this way. Let's persevere in doing that, no matter what happens. And then when people do reject, understand it in a biblical perspective. If they reject us, speaking the truth, they reject Christ and they reject the Father. If they listen to us, they listen to Christ and they listen to God, the Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.